everybody has seen the painting, The School of Athens, a famous uh, Renaissance fresco by Raphael. It shows all the great thinkers of antiquity engaged in lively intellectual activity. Plato and Aristotle are debating the relative merits of the world of ideas versus the world of the senses, and both of them are gesticulating enthusiastically to emphasize their point. Other people are absorbed in other debates, lectures, everybody's arguing, somebody's reading, somebody's writing, it's a very busy scene. Here, though, is something that most people do not notice in this painting. There is one and only one person in this entire pantheon who is actually making something. Everybody is thinking, arguing, reading, writing, except Euclid. Euclid is drawing with his compass. He is producing the subject matter that he is studying. He is active with his hands. Euclid is practically a craftsman among all these philosophers. In the ancient world, the mathematician is the maker. Geometry is the most hands-on of all the branches of philosophy and higher learning. Today, the cliché is that the math nerd is comically feeble in almost anything having to do with the physical action, like sports and so on. However, ancient geometry was in the thick of the action. You had to roll up your sleeves to do geometry. Even in theoretical geometry, you would constantly draw, construct, work with instruments. It, it was a very short step from mathematics to engineering. The greatest ancient mathematician, Archimedes, is almost as famous for his feats in engineering. For example, uh, mechanical devices for lifting and moving heavy objects, for transporting water, for irrigation purposes. Archimedes and other mathematicians were also at the front lines of war, building catapults and many other warfare machines, according to precise mathematical calculations. And they were also architects. The Hagia Sophia in Istanbul, for example, was designed by a mathematician, Isidore uh, who also wrote an appendix to the elements. It was also a theoretical mathematician. So in early modern times, like in the 17th century, for example, this link between mathematics and concrete action was well understood and appreciated. It's not a coincidence that it is reflected in uh, Raphael's uh, painting. And Francis Bacon, for example, uh, was sick of traditional philosophy because, as he said, it can talk, but it cannot generate this frustration led him to a radical counter-proposal. To know is to do. This was the mindset with which he approached a new kind of philosophy. These are his words. What in operation is most useful, that in knowledge is most true. On the other hand, uh, to study or feign inactive principles of things is the part of those who would so talk and nourish disputations. So that's... Uh, the worst, that's supposed to be a negative, obviously, to so talk and nourish disputations. We have to condemn much traditional philosophy who are only concerned with this. We have to turn instead to action, to doing. Maybe that's exactly what sets ancient mathematics apart from ancient philosophy, just as it does in Raphael's fresco, that the mathematics is active, philosophy merely sows talk and nourishes disputations. And perhaps that's why mathematics proved so fruitful. Uh, still, thousands of years later, mathematics is proving as useful as ever in terms of intricate theory, like planetary motions, as well as for practice, like engineering, navigation, and so on. Mathematics keeps 
bearing fruit, yielding new results all the time. Try doing that with Aristotle's doctrine of causes or Plato's theory of the soul or whatever typical philosophy stuff from antiquity. Those things might be great for sowing disputations, but if doing is the goal, you really can't get much mileage out of that uh, ancient theoretical philosophy. Thomas Hobbes is another famous 17th century philosopher who very much agreed with this analysis, this way of thinking about the essence of mathematics. Hobbes famously declared that geometry is the only science that it hath pleased God hitherto to bestow on mankind. So uh, why did Hobbes say that? Uh, what makes geometry so different from all other branches of philosophy and science? Why is geometry the only one that is the true knowledge? Hobbes' answer is constructions. He's very explicit about this. As he says, if the first principles contain not the generation of the subject, there can be nothing demonstrated as it ought to be. So this is what makes mathematics different. Its principles contain the generation of the subject. Euclid's postulates correspond to ruler and compass, that is to say, tools that generate the figures that geometry is about. All the philosophical and scientific theories are based on some assumptions and axioms, but they are not generative axioms most of the time, except in geometry. The, that is to say, they are not recipes for producing everything that the theory talks about from nothing. So it is in this light that we can readily appreciate, for instance, Hobbes otherwise peculiar-sounding claim that political philosophy, rather than physics or astronomy, is the field of knowledge that is most susceptible to mathematical rigor, mathematical demonstrations. Very surprising, isn't it? In modern terms, we would think that's completely uh, backwards, but Hobbes was convinced, and we can understand why. Here's how Hobbes formulates it. Of arts, some are demonstrable, others indemonstrable. And demonstrable are those, the construction of the subject whereof is in the power of the artist himself, who, in his demonstration, does no more but deduce the consequences of his own operation. The reason whereof is this, that the science of every subject is derived from a precognition of the causes, generation and construction of the same. And consequently, where the causes are known, there is place for demonstration, but not where the causes are to seek for. Geometry, therefore, is demonstrable, for the lines and figures from which we reason are drawn and described by ourselves. And civil philosophy is demonstrable because we make the commonwealth ourselves. So that is to say, uh, we make society, we make the laws of a society, and just as we make the geometrical figures as we construct triangles. So the, that's why the political philosophy and geometry are, are analogous, and that why they are not comparable to physics, for example, or astronomy, where, because we didn't make the stars, we didn't make falling objects. So uh, that's a strange way of looking at it, very bizarre uh, to modern ears. However, it makes perfect sense if we keep in mind the all-important role of constructions in classical geometry. Indeed, uh, you could point to other examples that support this point of view. There are many things that only the person who made it can really understand. So, for example, at this time, the 17th century, various mechanical devices were becoming more and more common. 
like pocket watches or all kinds of other machines that are based on gears, cogwheels and stuff like that. The person who made such a machine knew what all the parts were for. However, an outsider couldn't see that very easily at all. It looks like a, what, a complete mystery a labyrinth, right? If you open up a clock and look at all the parts and so on. Today, another example might be a computer program. The person who wrote a computer program knows how it works, what it can do, how it could be changed, what might cause it to fail, and so on. It'd be very difficult for someone else to get a similar sense for how the how it all works. Even if they had access to the source code, they could, uh, so to speak, uh, pop the hood, look at the gears, just as you would open a mechanical clock. Even then, it would be very difficult to understand our computer program, how it really works. It's so complicated to understand the, the, the workings of the parts, even if you can see them. The plan, the vision behind it is only accessible to the original designer. Only the maker truly knows. Maker's knowledge. This is a slogan very often repeated in the 17th century. Hobbes took this idea and built a general philosophy from it. His general philosophical program can be read as a direct generalization of the constructivist uh, precept to the domain of general philosophy. Here is how Hobbes defines philosophy. Philosophy is such knowledge of effects or appearances as we acquire by the true reasoning from their causes or generation. It's basically a direct equivalent in the more general terms of the principle that constructions are the source of mathematical knowledge or, or meaning. The, the emphasis on generation, to understand it from the way it was made. And Hobbes is indeed explicit about this parallel between geometry and philosophy. Here's how he puts it. How the knowledge of any effect may be gotten from the knowledge of the generation thereof may easily be understood by the example of a circle. For, if there be set before us a plain figure, having, as near as may be, the figure of a circle, we cannot possibly perceive by sense whether it be a true circle or no. But if it be known that the figure was made by the circumduction of a body, whereof one end remained unmoved, then, you know, the properties of a circle becomes evident. It's just to say you spin a line around one fixed point, that's how you generate a circle. You understand a circle because, because of the way you made it, with the, basically with a compass or with this, by turning a line segment around. Here's another way of putting it. I'm using Hobbes' words again. The subject of philosophy, or the matter it treats of, is every body of which we can conceive any generation. Well, so all that emphasis on generation again. This is just as, classically, the domain of geometry is the set of all constructible figures. So also the domain of philosophy is all that can be made, everything known through its generation. So concepts that are not constructively defined, they can easily be contradictory, meaningless. It's a common problem outside of geometry. As Hobbes himself says, senseless and insignificant language cannot be avoided by those that will teach philosophy without having first attained great knowledge in geometry. Indeed, as we have discussed before, 
anchoring geometrical entities in physical reality is a warrant of consistency. And Hobbes makes this point as well. Nature itself cannot err. That is to say, physical experiences are not subject to absurdity, as Hobbes says. They're not contradictory. It's notable that Hobbes and other 17th century thinkers, contemporaries of him, who invoked geometry all the time, as they often did, they didn't have in mind merely simple school geometry or some superficial remarks about geometry in Plato or Aristotle. Instead, they were referring to a very rich picture of geometrical method which emerges from a thorough study of advanced Greek geometry, technical geometrical writers of antiquity. When they call upon geometry, they do not mean some simplistic idea of axiomatic deductive method, you know, with logical proofs. No, no. Instead, they are referring to a rich methodology that is only conveyed implicitly in the finest ancient works of advanced geometry. That is where the importance of construction, the importance of generating figures is emphasized, not by Plato, not by Aristotle, but by the technical mathematical writers. Hobbes is very clear about this, in fact, as he says, his philosophy of geometry is, I quote, to an attentive reader versed in the demonstrations of mathematicians without any offensive novelty. This is a very interesting way of putting it. Let's pay attention to the precise formulations that Hobbes uses here. Indeed, one must be an attentive reader, as Hobbes says, because you have to draw out philosophical implications that are left implicit in the sources themselves. And the ancient mathematicians didn't say what their philosophy was. You have to be an attentive reader and spot what they intended. And likewise, you have to be versed in the demonstrations of mathematicians, as Hobbes says, which, that is to say, the demonstration of mathematicians, indeed, not other people, but the mathematicians. You have to pay attention to the technical Greek authors, the mathematicians themselves, not philosophers. Hobbes himself uh, stresses this. He talks about those very skillful masters in the most distant ages, above all in geometry, Euclid, Archimedes, Apollonius, Pappus, and others from ancient Greece. So he's stressing the importance of these technical authors. This is why Hobbes, in one of his works, quote, thought it fit to admonish the reader that he take into his hands the work of Euclid, Archimedes, Apollonius, and others. It's very interesting how the, it's really uh, implied that you must not rely on the commentaries of Plato and Aristotle, other philosophers. Rather, you must take into your hands the works of these technical authors themselves. This is where geometrical method, the truths about geometrical method, are to be found in the technical works. So that's Hobbes. Now, many other people in the 17th century, contemporaries of Hobbes, they picked up the same themes. It's not only Hobbes or, or Francis Bacon who saw these themes from the ancient sources. There were many people who interpreted ancient geometry in more or less the same way. Some took it to an epistemological extreme of saying that anything other than concrete, specific experience is strictly unknowable. This is uh, kind of the idea of taking the importance of construction as far as it will go. Right? Uh, there is nothing other than what you have constructed. Uh, here is one uh, thinker who went with that theme, Gassendi. He did not hesitate to take such a leap. He says as follows. 
things not yet created and having no existence, but being merely possible, have no reality and no truth. The moment you pass beyond things that are apparent or fall under the province of the senses and experience in order to inquire about deeper matters, both in mathematics or all other branches of knowledge, become completely shrouded in darkness. Mathematical objects must be considered in actual things. Indeed, as soon as numbers of figures are considered abstractly, then they are nothing at all. So those are all quotes from uh, Gassendi. And this point of view makes sense. He merely spells out the consequence of taking concrete construction to be the essential component or, or ingredient of knowledge, just as the mathematical tradition uh, suggests. Other philosophers agreed as well. Vico put it like this. We are able to demonstrate geometrical propositions because we create them. Were it possible for us to supply demonstrations of propositions in physics, we would be capable of creating them ex nihilo as well. So once again, the link between creation and knowledge is all important. Geometry is a key example supporting that way of thinking, and that point is then generalized to other fields. Philosophy, political science, anything, anything you like. Paolo Sarpi made uh, much the same point. Here's what he says. We know for certain both the existence and the cause of those things which we understand fully how to make. Just as in mathematics, someone who composes, demonstrates synthetically, demonstrates like Euclid does, someone who composes knows because he makes. So once again, the exact same point in, in very unequivocal terms asserted by yet another philosophical author in the early modern period. It's very striking how so many of these thinkers at that time, they were very well versed in the Greek uh, tradition. They knew the Greek mathematicians well. And they all, or all of the ones I quoted, seized upon the constructive element as the essence of the, the manner of the geometers, the mora geometrico, which was so crucial uh, at this time. Everybody wanted to mimic geometry, but what does that mean? Well, it means constructing stuff. Over and over again, you find this theme in the early modern period. So there were, of course, other perspectives on mathematics as well. Not everybody agreed necessarily with this construction stuff. A lot of people read too much Aristotle, not enough Archimedes. Then, as now, you might add, anyway, these Aristotelians, they didn't like mathematics much, and they tried to undermine its authority. So they tried to find a foundation in Aristotelian thought for attacking mathematics, and they found, uh, in particular, one way, a line of attack that they thought was uh, compelling, and it goes like this. Mathematical proofs like the ones in Euclid, they show that the theorem is true, but not why the theorem is true. So in other words, mathematics does not demonstrate from causes, as a science should, according to Aristotle. So let me quote here a typical expression of this argument from the Aristotelian philosopher Pereira in the 16th century. My opinion is that the mathematical disciplines are not proper sciences. To have science is to acquire knowledge of a thing through the cause on account of which the thing is. However, the most perfect kind of demonstration must depend upon those things which are proper 
to that which is demonstrated. Indeed, those things which are accidental and in common between the thing demonstrated and other things are excluded from perfect demonstrations. So Euclid's geometry is not a science in this sense, according to this point of view. For example, as Pereira himself says, consider the theorem that the angle sum of a triangle is two right angles. It's Euclid's uh, proposition 32. Pereira criticizes this and he says, the geometer proves this theorem on account of the fact that the external angle which results from extending the side of that triangle is equal to the two angles of the same triangle which are opposed to it. Who does not see that this middle is not the cause of the property which is demonstrated? The external angle is related in an altogether accidental way to the angle sum of the triangle. Indeed, whether the side is produced and the external angle is formed or not, or rather, even if we imagine that the production of the one side and the bringer about of the external angle is possible, nevertheless, that property would belong to the triangle. The property of having 180 degrees angle sum. But what else is the definition of an accident than what may belong or not belong to the thing without its corruption? So, if I may paraphrase, in other words, Euclid's proof of the angle sum theorem does not reveal the actual reason why the theorem is true. Instead, the, it proves the result via some non-essential thing, the an external angle sticking out from the triangle. The external part was obviously added by the geometer quite gratuitously. It's not really essential to the very nature of the triangle. It's just kind of an artificial trick to add an extra angle and base the proof on this additional component. Truly explanatory causal demonstrations should not be based on artificial tricks or, or uh, choices that the geometer makes. They should only employ what is truly essential to the situation, the inner nature of a triangle, not some auxiliary constructions that you put around it that are useful to make logical proofs, but that are not essential to the very essence of the thing you're trying to prove. Well, that's the idea behind this critique of why geometry is not a science. Schopenhauer is later ranted against Euclid along similar lines. Schopenhauer is a 19th century author. So these ideas, they were much more important and influential in the 16th century when Aristotelianism was a dominant philosophy. Nevertheless, it's fun to quote Schopenhauer here anyway, if I may, because he expresses the same ideas in a very charming way. He's a, a compelling writer. Uh, here's what Schopenhauer says. Perception is the primary source of all evidence. And the shortest way to this is always the surest, as every interposition of concepts means exposure to many deceptions. If we turn with this conviction to mathematics, as it was established as a science by Euclid, and has remained as a whole to our own day, we cannot help regarding the method it adopts as strange and indeed perverted. We ask that every logical proof shall be tracked back to its origin in perception. But mathematics, on the contrary, is at great pains deliberately to throw away the evidence of perception so that it may substitute for it a logical demonstration. This must seem to us like the action of a man who cuts off his legs in order to go on crutches. Isn't Schopenhauer the best, you know? Well, any anyway, I'll I'm going to continue reading because uh, it's such a great text. Uh, Schopenhauer continues like this. Instead of giving a thorough insight into the nature of the triangle, Euclid sets up certain disconnected, arbitrarily chosen propositions concerning the triangle and gives a logical 
background of knowledge of them through a laborious logical demonstration based upon the principle of contradiction. We are very much in position of a man to whom the different effects of an ingenious machine are shown, but from whom its inner connections and construction are withheld. We are compelled by the principle of contradiction to admit that what Euclid demonstrates is true, but we cannot comprehend why it is so. We have therefore almost the same uncomfortable feeling that we experience after a juggling trick. And in fact, most of Euclid's demonstrations are remarkably like such feats. The truth almost enters by the back door, for it manifests itself per accidents through some contingent circumstance. Often a reductio ad absurdum shuts all the doors one after another until only one is left through which we are therefore compelled to enter. Often, as in the proposition of Pythagoras, lines are drawn, we know not why, and afterwards it appears that they were traps which close unexpectedly and take prisoner the ascent of the astonished learner. The proposition of Pythagoras teaches us a qualitas occulta of the right-angled triangle. In our eyes, this method of Euclidean mathematics can appear only as a very brilliant piece of perversity. So that's Schopenhauer. So Schopenhauer completely agrees with these 16th century Aristotelians that Euclid's proofs are not explanatory, and instead they proceed by some kind of trick. Euclid is constantly setting logical mousetraps that force the reader to accept the conclusion, even though nothing has been uh, truly explained, genuinely, scientifically explained. It's very interesting that Schopenhauer uses the example of a machine that is shown to someone who doesn't know how it was made, and therefore this person is baffled by the machine and cannot understand how it works. Well, the, the people of the constructivist tradition that we discussed earlier, they used that very image to prove the opposite point, namely that in geometry we are the makers of the machines that we use, and precisely for that reason do we have genuine knowledge and understanding of it. The people who looked at it that way were basing themselves on mathematical sources. Schopenhauer and the 16th century Aristotelians who hated mathematics so much, they were also the ones who knew the least about it, knew the least about mathematics. They had not studied the technical Greek writers like Archimedes, Apollonius, Pappus. Some of those technical sources had not even been translated yet into Latin uh, at the time these Aristotelians were writing in the 16th century. And then by the time of Schopenhauer, well, they had all been forgotten again among philosophers. So you can criticize those kinds of arguments on those grounds for not appreciating the possibility of answering those critiques in terms of the constructivist tradition. However, these Aristotelian guys in the 16th century, they also had additional arguments to support their point that are quite interesting. For instance, consider... Euclid's uh, area theorems for parallelograms and triangles. This is the propositions 35 and 37 of the elements. These theorems say that the same base and the same height implies the same area for parallelograms and for triangles. The first theorem says it for parallelograms and the other for triangles. The proof of the second theorem is based on the first one. A triangle is just half a parallelogram. So since we already have the result of parallelograms, it follows almost immediately that is also true for triangles. That's how Euclid proves it. However, we could just as well have done it the other way around. We could have proved the theorems first for triangles and then infer it for parallelograms by saying parallelograms are just double triangles instead of triangles half parallelograms. Either way, you can look at it one way or the other. It doesn't make any difference. Euclid chose to start with the parallelogram and then do the triangle. 
it was an arbitrary choice. It doesn't reflect a causal relation. The two terms are equivalent. It's not that one of them is more fundamental or, or one of them explains or causes the other theorem to be true. Neither of the two theorems is more of a cause than the other. So in this way, uh, Euclid's procedure or, or the nature of geometrical demonstration doesn't fit Aristotle's decree that demonstrations should proceed from causes, that you should give the reason why it is true. So these guys, like I said, they didn't keep in mind the whole uh, construction business. They were not aware of that because they had not read so much mathematics. Later, Leibniz, a leading philosopher, he knew both the mathematical and the philosophical traditions very well, argued that uh, the construction perspective solves the problem that the Aristotelians had raised. That was Leibniz's uh, point of view. And here's what Leibniz says. Geometry does demonstrate from causes, for it demonstrates figures from motion. For the motion of a point, a line arises. From the motion of a line, a surface. From the motion of a surface, a body. Thus, the construction of figures are motions, and the properties of figures being demonstrated from their constructions therefore come from motion and hence from a cause. So, basing geometry on constructions imposes a natural order, a kind of causal hierarchy, as it were, on the theorems of geometry. Therefore, Aristotle's ideal of demonstrative understanding can be maintained. Geometry really is a science in that way, in terms of the... It is demonstrated from a cause because it's demonstrated from the generation, from the creation, which is a cause. So that's how Leibniz looked at it, who was able then to uh, combine the two threads that we have discussed so far. The Aristotelian critique on the one hand and the constructivist operationalist interpretation on the other hand. Let's have a look at uh, Descartes as well. Descartes also had interesting ideas about what made mathematics such a special type of knowledge and how its success could be emulated in other fields, in other branches of philosophy. In the Discourse of Methods, 1637, Descartes explained his philosophical program and how he arrived at it. In an introduction, he writes a sort of an autobiographical style, how he arrived at these ideas. Here's what he says. I was most keen on mathematics because of its certainty and the incontrovertibility of its proofs, considering that all of those who had up to now sought truth in the sphere of human knowledge, only the mathematicians have been able to discover any proofs, that is, any certain and incontrovertible arguments, I did not doubt that I should begin as they had done. These are the words of Descartes, famous for doubting everything. This very method had been called the method of doubt. Yet, as he himself says, I did not doubt that I should follow the mathematicians. That's how convincing the mathematics is as a this paradigm of a successful mode of reasoning that everybody would like to be as successful as that so what remained then was just to extend the mathematical method to other areas as well to philosophy in general as Descartes says believing as I did then the only application of mathematics was to the mechanical arts I was astonished that nothing more exalted had been built on such sure and solid foundations that is to say, you know, just imagine what amazing things could have been achieved in other fields if they had been as successful as mathematics. It was a very common sentiment at the time. Hobbes made the same point. Here's what he says in his words. The geometricians have very admirably performed their part, 
For whatsoever assistance does accrue to the life of man, whether from the observation of the heavens, from the descriptions of the earth, from the notation of times, or from the remotest experiments of navigation, finally, whatsoever things there are in which this present age doth differ from the rude simpleness of antiquity, we must acknowledge to be a debt which we owe merely to geometry. If the moral philosophers had as happily discharged their duty, I know not what could have been added by humane industry to the completion of that happiness which is consistent with human life. So, the goal of philosophy is to be as good as mathematics. Hobbes and Descartes agreed about that. Let's see what Descartes considers to be the foundations of mathematics then. So he formulates a method for how to philosophize in general, and he intends this to be a generalization of the mathematical method. So you might say that Descartes' methodological program is part descriptive and part prescriptive. It is descriptive because it describes how geometry works. This is an analysis meant to capture what made Euclid so great. And at the same time, Descartes' program is also prescriptive, because it gives orders as how to one should philosophize. Whatever Euclid did in geometry, that philosophers should do in every field, like physics, ethics, theology, and so on. So that is the prescriptive part. Here's what Descartes says about the axioms or starting point of a theory. We discussed before whether axioms should necessarily be obvious. Descartes comes down very firmly on that issue. Here's what he says. The first principle of my method was never to accept anything as true that I did not incontrovertibly know to be so. That is to say, carefully to avoid both prejudice and premature conclusions and to include nothing in my judgment other than that which presented itself to my mind so clearly and distinctly that I would have no occasion to doubt it. So, we should start only from the most obvious things, in other words. Things that are so clear that they cannot be doubted. Things known by immediate intuition, in other words. That's supposed to correspond to the axioms of Euclid, evidently. So, Descartes has a lot of faith in innate intuition. As Descartes says, there are basic roots of truth implanted in the human mind by nature which we extinguish in ourselves daily by reading and hearing many varied errors. So there is this inner uh, natural light which is more reliable than book learning. We should, Descartes says, conduct thoughts in a given order, beginning with the simplest and the most easily understood objects and gradually ascending, as it were, step by step to the knowledge of the most complex. And for the sake uh, of the stepwise process, it is necessary to divide all the difficulties under examination into as many parts as possible. Indeed, you can see how philosophy is going to look a lot like Euclid if uh, people follow these rules that Descartes uh, lays down. With the stepwise process, the gradually building up from the simple to the, the complex, and so on. Straight up Euclid. It's interesting that Descartes also specifically says that one should, quote, posit an order even on those things which do not have a natural order or precedence. It's kind of a reply to the Aristotelian point that I just mentioned above. The Aristotelians, they were arguing that when two theorems are equivalent, like the area theorem for triangles and parallelograms, then it is uh, 
artificial, unscientific to impose a particular order that makes one logically prior to the other as Euclid does. Then you haven't given a causal explanation as Aristotle says one should. Descartes turns the tables on this. Instead of criticizing Euclid when his method seems to go against philosophical sense, he makes Euclid the boss of philosophy. Whatever Euclid does, that's good method. So if Euclid imposes an artificial logical order on equivalent theorems, then that's what one should do in philosophy. Descartes concludes, well, that goes against Aristotle, so what? The people I quoted from the 16th century, 100 years before Descartes, they thought Aristotle had more authority than Euclid, so they used Aristotle to criticize Euclid. Now, 100 years later, with Descartes, it's the other way around. Descartes would rather use Euclid to criticize Aristotle. A lot have happened in those 100 years. A lot of new science, Copernicus, Galileo, Kepler, etc. Science had made terrific progress by using Euclid and ignoring Aristotle. By the time of Descartes, the Aristotelians were dinosaurs. Descartes didn't pull any punches when he was making this point. He condemned the Aristotelians as less knowledgeable than if they had abstained from study. Those are Descartes' words. So this new hierarchy, where mathematics had greater authority than philosophy, was soon widely accepted. John Locke, a famous philosopher, he put it like this half a century later, in an age that produces such masters as the great Hugenius, that's Christian Hauchens, the Dutch uh, mathematician, that produces great masters as the great Hugenius and the incomparable Mr. Newton, it is ambitious enough to be employed as an under-laborer in clearing the ground a little and removing some of the rubbish that lies in the way to knowledge. This is well, how Locke describes the task of the philosopher. Philosophy is just an under-laborer to mathematical science. It's uh, quite striking that uh, Locke voluntarily takes this quite humbling perspective and calls himself an under-laborer. Meanwhile, the real geniuses, the real creative forces are mathematicians like Huygens, like Newton. They, the philosophers merely take on a subordinated role. The task of philosopher is to explain to others how to follow the lead of the mathematical sciences. And that's why John Locke calls himself a mere under-laborer. All right, so that was the general methodological influence of mathematics on Descartes. But Descartes was not content with merely adopting the Euclidean method in philosophy. He also wants to justify the Euclidean method. He wants to explain why it is so reliable. And he does this in his Principles of Philosophy of 1644. In the very first sentence of this book, Descartes says, Whoever is searching for truth must, once in his life, doubt all things. As we just saw in his earlier work, he had said that he did not doubt the method of the mathematicians. And now he's going to fix that gap. Let's say you did doubt the mathematical method, the method of Euclid. According to Descartes, as we saw, the foundations of the method of geometry was intuition. Euclid starts with axioms such as if equals are added to equals, then the results will be equal. Intuitively, basic truths like that feel completely undoubtable. We are so convinced that they must be true, even though we cannot prove these things. We cannot explain them in terms of something else. That We just know they're true immediately. They're the simplest possible kinds of truths. 
So we might say it's unavoidable that there have to be something that's our axiomatic or kind of the uh, the atoms of the world of truth, so to speak. We've got to start somewhere, the, the in, indivisible parts. There will always be something we cannot prove. In a deductive system, one thing is deduced from another. You have to start somewhere. If you try to say, no, I don't want anything that's not proven, so let me prove Euclid's axioms. Well, but then you have to prove them from something. Whatever those things are that you use to prove the axioms, they will now have to become the new axioms. Then they will have to be assumed, so you're still left with assumptions. Or you can keep going like that forever and just make new assumptions all the time, but in any case, you can never escape the cycle you're always having to assume something. Unless, unless we find axioms that are somehow logically self-justifying. This is the idea of the consequentia mirabilis. We discussed it before. Axioms can be self-justifying if it is incoherent to try to refute them. If asserting that the axiom is false actually implies accepting the axiom, then the axiom is self-justifying. That way we can find an end to the problem of infinite regress. It's the problem of always having to prove everything for something else in this never-ending cycle that can be fixed with the consequentia mirabilis axioms. Indeed, that's going to be Descartes' solution. He will give an axiom of that type, and, and then a consequentia mirabilis axiom, and then derive the Euclidean axioms from that. So that way he will have clues to loop, as it were. There are no loose ends, nothing unjustified left anymore. And here is Descartes' axiom. I think, therefore I am. That is the undeniable truth which cannot be denied because denying it would be self-contradictory. Here is how Descartes puts it. We can indeed easily suppose that there is no God, no heaven, no material bodies, and yet even that we ourselves have no hands or feet, in short, no body. Yet we cannot on that account suppose that we who are thinking such things are nothing. For it is contradictory for us to believe that that which thinks at the very time when it is thinking does not exist. And accordingly, this knowledge, I think, therefore I am, is the first and most certain to be acquired by and present itself to anyone who is philosophizing in correct order. Right, so that's the, this, this axiom that cannot be denied, because to deny it would be contradictory. You can deny many other things, like the existence of God, the existence of our hands, but not the fact that you are thinking. Okay, fine, but how are you supposed to prove Euclid's axioms from that? This seems very difficult. How am I supposed to prove geometrical statements from I think, therefore I am? Uh, what's the link? Descartes, in fact, has an answer to this. The knowledge of remaining things, which includes geometry, depend on a knowledge of God, Descartes declares. This is because the next things that the mind feels certain of are basic mathematical facts. However, the mind cannot trust its judgment unless it knows that the Creator is not deceitful. As Descartes says, the mind discovers in itself certain common notions, like for example the axioms of Euclid, and forms various proofs from these. And as long as it is concentrating on these proofs, it is entirely convinced that they are true. Thus, for example, the mind has in itself the ideas of number and figures, and also has among its common notions that if equals are added to equals, the result will be equal and other similar ones, from which it is easily proved 
that the three angles of a triangle are equal to two right angles, etc. That's how Descartes puts it, and he's summarizing, and it, it is basically giving an interpretation of how Euclid works, how, how the axioms are intuitions, primitive intuitions, and other things are just consequences from them, of course, just as uh, you would think from reading Euclid. Now, how then are we going to uh, know that the mind could not doubt these things that correspond to the axioms of Euclid? Here's how Descartes explains that. The mind does not yet know whether it was perhaps created of such a nature that it errs even in those things which appear most evident to it. Therefore, the mind sees that it rightly doubts such things and cannot have any certain knowledge until it has come to know the author of its origin. All right, so the mathematics depends on intuition, intuition of the axioms of Euclid, and intuition is something implanted into the mind. God made us have these intuitions. So justifying our innate intuitions depend on the nature of God. So what can we know about, about that, about how God implanted intuitions in our minds? What was God's intent when doing that? And so how is, why was, why did, what about that process of God giving us intuitions makes those intuitions reliable? So Descartes has an argument to answer that. It's based on the idea that God is a supremely perfect being, as Descartes says. Descartes claims that he can prove that there must be a supremely perfect being. And here's how he proves that that must be the case. I'll quote his argument. That which is more perfect is not produced by a cause which is less perfect. There cannot be in us the idea or image of anything of which there does not exist somewhere some original which truly contain all its perfections. And because we in no way find in ourselves those supreme perfections of which we have the idea, from that fact alone we rightly conclude that they exist or certainly once existed in something different than us, that is, in God. It follows from this that all the things which we clearly perceive are true and that the doubts previously listed are removed because God is not the cause of errors owing to his perfection because the will to deceive certainly never proceeds from anything other than malice or fear or weakness and consequently cannot occur in God. Thus, mathematical truths must no longer be mistrusted by us, since they are most manifest. So let me paraphrase Descartes' argument here and summarize it. It goes like this. Euclid's axioms are true because we innately feel them to be true, and this intuition was implanted into us by God. Our intuition is reliable because God is not a deceiver, because he is a perfect being. God must be perfect because we have the idea of perfection and we can only get the idea of perfection from actual perfection. Since we can conceive of perfection, there must be perfection. There must be a perfect being, a perfect God. That God has hardwired truths such as Euclidean axioms into our minds and they must be right because God wouldn't be perfect anymore if he tricked us by implanting false beliefs into our minds. So that's Descartes' argument. I think it's very interesting how we can tell this entire story as driven almost completely by the analysis of Euclid. The whole thing about God and so on is almost like an afterthought, a stepping stone a minor stepping stone, you might say, the place of it in this argument, 
sort of the real goal is to justify the geometrical method, that is to say, to explain why Euclid's axioms should be believed. It seems you, you could almost interpret it as if that is the thing that Descartes is really interested in, and whereas all this philosophy, theology stuff, you know, I think, therefore I am, the existence of God, God is perfect, blah, 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 those are sort of uh, supporting characters or secondary concerns almost, or at least that's one way of reading Descartes. If you come to Descartes from a mathematical point of view, you can view it in those kinds of terms. Of course, a lot of people read Descartes from a completely different angle. They think the theology stuff is great and they you know, couldn't care less about math. You know, Why are there some math examples in this theology text? They're like, oh, never mind that, you know. But uh, I think uh, coming from mathematics is fascinating, and maybe we make the mistake the opposite direction. We think he, the only reason God is in there at all is because uh, we just have to explain why, uh, why, why Euclid is right, you know. Well, anyway, it's interesting to think about those different uh, angles of interpreting Descartes. The least we can say is that uh, in Descartes, as in the previous philosophers we have discussed uh, today, we have seen a very profound influence of ancient geometry. Euclid was still setting the course for philosophy 2,000 years after his death. That's all the more reason to study him, in my opinion. Thank you.